Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 202. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing two fairly obscure movies based on novels by one of my favourite crime and general fiction writers, John D. MacDonald. So the first one is from 1961 and it is Man Trap starring Jeffrey Hunter, David Jansen and Stella Stevens. And then we go up to 1984 for a very obscure one, Victor Nunez's movie... A Flash of Green starring Ed Harris, Richard Jordan and Blair Brown. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, Feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even friend me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, Anyway, I'll get on with the show now and um, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so how is everybody going? The weather has finally become warm here. At the moment, it's 30 degrees centigrade. Um, People in North America can work that out if they want to. But uh, the day is kind of sunny. Uh, Spent Sunday, I'm actually recording this on Monday, but I actually spent Saturday, not Sunday, out in a friend's garden, eating way too much food and catching up with people before the festive season and uh, having a good time. Got a little bit sunburnt too, but fortunately with my skin tone, it turns brown fairly quickly. So there's not too much damage done from that uncontrolled nuclear reactor in the sky so what happened this week kirk douglas turned 100 which is kind of cool and it definitely beats the alternative one of the things is i posted something about kirk douglas turning 100 and a few people didn't read it properly and they all kind of went on a rant about how 2016 was killing everybody cool and nice in the universe and i just kind of directed them back and went just read it please um yeah this meme of 2016 being um a really shit year i mean there's an argument for it there's arguments against it too i'm sure there are any number of people who've had children um got married enjoyed their life found a new lover dumped one they didn't like all sorts of wonderful things have happened to people in this year but the things that were bad had a much higher profile and you know social media being what is and being the evolving monster that it is kind of enhances our awareness of that kind of thing happens every year if you go back and look at the recent deaths on um wikipedia you'll see that more or less famous people die every day. You know, there are a whole bunch of kind of World War II war heroes who are dropping off the twig. There are actors, actresses, directors, singers, musicians, sports people, politicians, architects, scientists, every kind of person who has had an influence of some kind on the human race steps on the rainbow every day of the year. So we kind of need to stop doing that 2016 is shit thing for the simple reason that you're bringing us all down. You're basically being a bummer when you do that. Um, Yeah, fair enough. David Bowie died and Leonard Cohen died and Alan Rickman died and all these other people died. Fair enough. Happens every year. It doesn't really cluster. Um, I think the cherry on the top of that particular turd dessert was, of course, Trump winning the US election. 
But we can't let that get us down because if we do, they win. We've got to stay cheerful and go, well, think of all the people that didn't die. Kirk Douglas didn't die, for instance. Maggie Smith didn't die. Any number of cool actors are still out there pumping. Helen Mirren's still going strong. Morgan Freeman has about 25 more US presidents in him before he dies. So just let it happen. Let the universe unfold as it will. And just try not to let it let let you down too much because um, you're not helping yourself and you're not helping everybody else and fair enough as, as time goes on this is what happens as time goes on your music collection silts up with dead people it's an inevitable thing I'm looking up at my shelves of vinyl at the moment here in the famous man cave and most of the people who created that music um, are looking from the grass from the other side so you just kind of got to accept that and go, yeah, well, you know, the sooner we develop immortality and space travel, the better. But until we do, we're going to have to come to terms with mortality. Hopefully everybody else has accept our own, but nonetheless, we do have to do that. Um, yeah, it happens to us all, and it, it's horrible that it happens, and it's horrible that people we really respect and revere and who have had a profound influence on our life are no longer around. But you've got to be cool about it. It really is the best approach and the healthiest approach from your own self-care point of view. And the other good part is, no matter how bad your 2017 is going to be, it's going to be worse for the Manchurian candidate with the comb over sitting in the White House because he is going to be so far out of his depth that an aqualung is not going to help him. So take heart in that. And um, I should really just let you know what we're doing for the show. We're doing two movies based on the works of John D. MacDonald, my favourite crime writer of all time. And they're kind of obscure. One of them has just come out on DVD and Blu-ray, so you can pick it up. And that is the 1961 movie Man Trap, which is a kind of late film noir starring David Jansen, Jeffrey Hunter and Stella Stevens. It was actually directed by an Oscar-winning actor who played a character called Oscar when he won an Oscar. And that is Eben O'Brien, character actor who's in DOA and The Barefoot Contessa and any number of other films as well, actually directed this. This was only one of the two things he directed. From there we go on to 1984 for a movie that was a part of the American Playhouse season on PBS. Uh, directed by a, an obscure but uh, very interesting director called Victor Nunez. It's an adaptation of John D. McDonald's novel, A Flash of Green, starring Ed Harris, Richard Jordan, and Blair Brown. And it's kind of um, a Florida novel rather than a crime novel. It's about ecology, and, and the novel itself was written, he said, opening up his paperback copy of the novel very quickly and with absolutely no... Um, pause at all in 1962 but it covered um, the ecological damage of development and uncontrolled development in the, on the west coast of Florida so it's an interesting movie and uh, if you get a chance to get the book it's a very interesting book as well there are some copies on eBay anyway I'm going to let you know now what I've been watching since the last time we um, had a chat now most of what I've been watching has been YouTube videos because they're the popcorn of viewing these days, even more so than watching television is. And so I've been watching you know, like things like you know, 10 worst car crashes taken with footage taken by a Russian dash cam and weird and wonderful shit like that. Just to kind of you know, really 
popcorn, dumbed down, silly but visually interesting movies. Um, lots of move. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of trucks going under low bridges unsuccessfully and children falling over in the snow, which is another entertaining one. People falling off BMX bikes and kind of that kind of stuff. And also cats trying to jump onto tables unsuccessfully so i've done a lot of that kind of thing but as far as narrative works are concerned um rebecca mclaren and i did our last um abc radio talk about movies for 2016 and we decided we want to do a christmas movie and being the geeky kind of people that we definitely are we decided on the obvious christmas movie die hard and so we had a chat about die hard how wonderful Alan Rickman was, uh, the the way the movie structured, the plot. Basically, we geeked out about Die Hard and had a really good time with it. And we couldn't say motherfucker on um, the radio because apparently some people choke on their drink when you do that. So we, I decided that I would have to come up with an alternative to yippee motherfucker. And so I decided to say yippee Oedipus which is a kind of obscure classical reference. But nonetheless, one of the cool things about it is it always makes Beck giggle. So when I, every time I said Yibikaya Oedipus, she'd giggle. And so we had a lot of good fun with that. We really um, enjoyed ourselves. And the loveliest thing, of course, about this is that they've invited me back to do the ABC Radio Northern Territory gig next year. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, I'm, it's never certain that I'm going to be back the following year, but they want me to do it, so I'm very, very happy to do so. Once they all get back from their annual leave, uh, probably late January, early February, I'll be back on the saddle in the saddle again, talking about movies for the masses, as I do with this podcast, of course. I think this is either the seventh or the eighth year that I've done it, and we haven't run out of movies yet, any more than we have for the podcast. But um, I really, really enjoy it, and uh, it's nice going down to Southbank Studios. The ABC Southbank Studios on the southern side of the Yarra River here in Melbourne is an interesting place because they're renovating it. Basically, they're gutting the building while not taking out any of the broadcasting things. So you've got to walk through construction sites in a very labyrinthine, mazy kind of way to get to what they call the TARDIS booths. So you can um, have a chat with people interstate and um, do the radio that way. So every time I go there, there's a different pathway from the entrance. The lobby's actually moved around the side of the building now. From the entrance to the TARDIS booths, and you've got to follow the signs. And um, yeah, it's it's interesting that the national broadcaster in Melbourne is running basically out of a building site. Um, nonetheless, they they kept everything going. They've got ABC Television and ABC Radio and Radio National and Triple J and all of the other associated national broadcaster stations in the local area running out of basically, yeah, a construction site. But um, they're all very nice people and I'm very happy to be associated with them for another year. So I watched Die Hard, which is an endless pleasure. I always enjoy that. Uh, I did watch Bill Murray's movie based on the life of Hunter S. Thompson, Where the Buffalo Roam. It's also got Peter Boyle in it and uh, a few other people. I think Susan Terrell's in there somewhere as well. I watched it late at night when I was a bit tired. But I kind of like it. I think Bill Murray, youngish Bill Murray, was a good alternative to Hunter S. Thompson. And he gets some of the mannerisms right and, and the gonzo style uh people have compared it unfavorably to um if you're in loathing in las vegas but i kind of like where the buffalo roams 
I saw it at the Valhalla Cinema in Sydney the first time I saw it back in the 1980s, which was the kind of geeky alternative cinema in Sydney. It was in Glebe, and fortunately I lived within walking distance of it at the time, so I went to see where the Buffalo Roman had a great time with that. Um, and revisiting it was kind of nice. It's very much of its time, but... Yeah, it's it's worth checking out again. And I got it for something like five bucks from Umbrella Entertainment here in Australia. So that wasn't too much of a burden on the finances. The other movie I watched was a Netflix film called Spectral, which stars um, Emily Mortimer and James Badgedale and a few other kind of familiar faces. It's about a um, an American special forces team in, in Slovenia, for some reason, who come upon a um, failed government research place where they were basically weaponizing ghosts. And so they found a way to create um, Bose, Einstein Bose con- condensate ghosts, which freeze people at the touch and can't be seen. So they're basically invisible murder weapons. Uh, the movie's special effects are very good, but I think there's not enough plot to hang them off, which is a bit of a shame. But nonetheless, it was a bit of fun to watch. It's one of those movies that they film in Eastern Europe because they can smash up buildings without too much trouble. But if you're in the mood for that kind of thing, um, with some special effects, lots of machine guns, some very kind of slightly, not quite steampunky, but diesel-punky weapons... It's worth checking out. It's nothing special, but I kind of enjoyed it, and I was in the mood for something light. Apart from that, I've just been watching television shows and things. But the good news is I've actually got a week off. I'm I'm recording this, not filming it. Fuck no. Of course not filming it. I'm recording this on a Monday because I've got this week off, which is kind of cool. I've got two more weeks off in February when I'm going up to Sydney to visit family, which is going to be quite good i always enjoy that so we're gonna um drive up to sydney about 800 kilometers and hang out with the family in feb but i managed to squeeze in one week before newton mass and so i'm not doing too much what i want to do is maybe try to get an episode ahead on both of the podcasts to give myself a bit of breathing space but um apart from that you know just kind of general household stuff and, and chilling out and doing what time off is designed for which is anything but work and i am extremely good at doing nothing i have high level bruce lee ninja skills at doing fuck all and so that's the intention for the week is doing as little as possible apart from stuff around the house and hanging out with sal so i'm going to take a break now and when i get back i'm going to talk about man trap from 1961 but in the meantime uh some petula clark i think I studied Shakespeare when I was at school Thought Romeo was a pet Felt if I met him I'd act like a fool I'd be a poor Juliet Now that I know him I'm not really sure For you're as charming as he Saying the same things to all the girls Or is it just to me? Thank you. 
did Shakespeare when I was at school Thought Romeo was a joy I liked the true way he loved Juliet Just my ideal of a boy You know I like you as my Romeo That's how I want you to be But if you're out on some other date Can you be true to me? was Petula Clark with Romeo. Uh, so on to the movies. Now, one of the reasons why I'm doing these two movies in particular is 2016 marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of John D. MacDonald. People may know him from some of the movies based on his work, uh, things like Cape Fear, for instance, Darker Than Amber, and a TV movie that was made in the 80s called The Empty Copper Sea. Uh, McDonald started out in the pulps. He was in World War II and uh, mostly doing intelligence work in what's now Sri Lanka. And uh, he wrote some stories to keep his wife amused and mailed them home to her and she got one of them published. And so after they crunched the numbers, he'd originally been a business executive. He was trained um, as a business executive and he decided he'd have a go at becoming a writer of fiction and so he started out in the crime pulps and the science fiction pulps too he wrote some fine science fiction stories in his early days and um in 1952 his first novel the brass cupcake came out kind of hard gritty hard-boiled crime fiction and he went on to have a great success over the next decade in the early 60s he decided he wanted to have a go at a serial character so his agent was a guy called Knox Berger who uh, worked for Fawcett Publications. Uh, Fawcett Publications and Knox Berger had a, a large influence on a number of very um, fine writers of the middle part of the 20th century. People like Kirk Vonnegut, John Steinbeck, Ray Bradbury, Lawrence Block, Jack Finney, Horace McCoy, Walter Tevis, Donald Westlake, Louis L'Amour, and a bunch of other people. So Knox Berger was a very important guy, and he worked with McDonald to create the character of Travis McGee, who MacDonald later went on to write 21 novels about before his death in 1986. Travis McGee's appeared two times, once as Rod Taylor in Darker Than Amber in 1969, I think it is a Robert Klaus movie. I talked about it on a very early Paleo Cinema podcast. The other adaptation was the TV adaptation, The Empty Copper Sea, where Sam Elliott played the character, and it's a fairly good adaptation of the original work um other people have tried since then to make movies based on uh mcgee that at one stage clint eastwood was looking into it leonardo dicaprio was looking into it a number of people have tried to make travis mcgee movies at this stage they haven't been successful i reckon 
an HBO series would be the way to go if you were going to do that in the current media environment. But McDonald's other crime novels and other novels in general are well worth a read. Some of them are dated more than others, but uh, for the most part, they're fine works. He um, worked on a number of themes that uh, people weren't really talking about at the time he did. For instance, in the second movie I'm going to talk about, A Flash of Green, it's the environment and ecology, and he um, was one of the people who was writing about that shit before anybody else was. Uh, there are other things as well, um, economics, the um, race relations, the disparity between rich people and poor people, uh, the effects of war on returned servicemen. That's a big theme, and it's also a big noir theme in general. The, um, the damage done to particularly men after the war. And in Mantrap, which the novel was also known as Soft Touch, it had two names depending on which market it was in, uh, we come up against a protagonist who was affected by a war. He had a metal plate put in his head in the Korean War where he was considered a hero. That character is Matt Jamison, played by Jeffrey Hunter. Um, he lives with his wife Nina, played by a young and very sexy Stella Stevens. Um, and he's he's the son-in-law of the man who runs the company he works for, a construction company. And he's played by a guy called Hugh Sanders, who's been a character actor for a very long time at, by this stage. The problem that um, Matt has is that Nina is an alcoholic and also is very sexually promiscuous. For instance, here's the scene where Matt meets up with his old war buddy, Vince, played by David Jansen, who's come to him with the idea of robbing a man at the San Francisco airport of a suitcase containing $3 million. But here's the meeting between Vince, Matt, and Nina from Mantrap. Vince! Who are you expecting? Uh, you son of a cow! Hey, you funny! You funny! I thought you'd be a fat old man, what buddy. You know? You'd never look greater. I'll yeah, tell well, you. it's the late hours and all that liquid, huh? Yeah. Hello. Hey, now that's just my style. Hey, you remembered, buddy? A blonde. Oh, she's perfect. Sweet, huh? Honey, this is the fabulous Vince. A pleasure. Well, you're a real fine buddy, buddy. My first night down, you got me a long one, huh? Mm. How about you? What's your wife? Oh, I'm gonna like him. <laughs> well, that's my wife, and you know it. That's you. For real? For real. You're breaking my heart. That I'd never do. So there's already a rapport between um, Nina and Vince. Um, I probably should do a bit of a pricey about this movie and kind of put it into uh, a brief bunch of words instead of rambling about it throughout the narrative. During the Korean War, Matt saves the life of his buddy Vince, who promises someday he'll repay Matt by cutting him in on a million-dollar deal. Eight years later, Matt is in the midst of a rapidly disintegrating marriage to Nina, a man-hungry alcoholic, 
Vince suddenly reappears for a reunion with Matt, telling him that the enemies of a Central American dictator have hijacked $3.5 million, and that he knows how he can get hold of the money and collect a large reward that he will share with Matt if he will help him to recover the money. Matt is sceptical, but after a particularly violent quarrel in which he leaves his wife, he agrees to go along with Vince, provided there is no gunplay. That's a kind of brief praise of it, but there are a couple of twists and turns on this. Now, as I said, the movie was directed by Edmund O'Brien, and it's a fairly low-budget piece, even though it was done in um, widescreen. It is in black and white, but I kind of like it. It's got um, a really nice little jazz score by a composer and arranger called Lee Stevens. Now, Lee Stevens is kind of interesting because he did a number of things we know quite well. He actually did um, incidental music for Mannix and the Brady Bunch, The Odd Couple, Mission Impossible, Love American Style, Daniel Boone, um, and a whole bunch of B-movies, things like um, Navy Versus and Night Monsters and Women from the Prehistoric Planet. He composed the music for a TV series called Space Angel that people might remember from the early 60s. Um, Have Gun Will Travel, Gun Smoke... I Married a Monster from Outer Space, and um, a whole bunch of others. He was really kind of a go-to guy. He also did uh, Private Hill 36, which was one of Idle Pino's film noirs. So he was kind of well-known for that kind of brassy jazz score for a certain kind of uh, crime or drama movies. He was a kind of second-rate composer, but um, his stuff is is fairly recognisable when you hear it. I'll just give you a little bit from the start of the movie. So that kind of stuff, a little bit of a Stan Kenton influence there. So um, the other problem is, of course, that Matt has a girlfriend. He hasn't slept with her, but he's kind of working around to it. A secretary at her father-in-law, his father-in-law's office, played by an actor called Elaine Dev- Devery. Now, Elaine Devery is interesting for a couple of reasons. Her first husband may have been killed by the mob because of a gambling debt in Las Vegas. But her second husband was Mickey Rooney. She was married to him from 1952 to 1959. And she later appeared in a number of other films, including things like Guide for the Married Man, where she plays the woman that Walter Matthau wants to sleep with. Um, Very attractive red-headed actress. This being 1960s and 1950s Hollywood. Um, Really attractive actresses weren't given the opportunity to do the kind of roles that they were capable of. And I think Elaine Devery was one of those actresses that could have gone further had she had the right material. And there are any number of them that people looked at as inverted commas starlets, but who um, did have a presence and an intelligence about them that really could have done more in, in other movies. But there are a few other aspects as well of Mantrap that are kind of interesting, one of which is the suburban kind of upper-middle-class culture that is created for the movie, where uh, a bunch of people, the neighbours, get together and get drunk and have barbecues together and play sex games. Um, And then it's a little bit shocking for 1961. And the best bit about all of this, from a movie buff point of view, is that one of the main participants in these, in his first 
featured role in a motion picture is Bob Crane, who people know first off from Hogan's Heroes, but mostly from the movie Autofocus and, of course, his own sexual addiction. So Bob Crane's in there amidst all of these um, suburban people, you know, having affairs with each other's wives and doing all sorts of things like that. It's kind of reflective of a, an early Herschel Gordon Lewis non-gore movie, in a sense. But, um, yeah, it, it kind of makes it interesting to see this kind of wild, Hollywoodized, um, sexually explosive situation. And this is only a side plot to the movie. This isn't the main plot of the movie. The main plot, of course, is Vince convincing Matt that what they need to do is... Uh, grab this suitcase at the airport and ostensibly um, give back uh, 2.3 million of the 3.3 million and keep a million for themselves. Uh, of course, it doesn't work out. Uh, things don't go quite the way that they plan. There's a bit of a um, media event going on at the airport where a pop star turns up and is mobbed by young girls, which makes grabbing the suitcase and getting away problematic. The other thing is, too, that there are three armed men who are following the man with the suitcase and a gunfight ensues and Vince is injured. Um, he's shot with a bullet as they escape with the suitcase. This then becomes a problem for Matt because Vince has got to stay and recover at Matt's home and Vince and Nina um, have a thing for each other. So Matt's trying to kind of balance this stuff out. He's hidden the money away, but he's got a number of problems, one of which is people know that Vince was involved in the robbery and his name is out in the, in the media. People know that Vince is staying at his house. He's got that as one problem. The other problem he's got is his wife who is probably going to leave him at some stage, possibly with Vince, and who is flirting outrageously with Vince and, and um, eventually he does catch them together. And then something interesting happens the three men who chase them from the airport turn up at his house and grab Matt and bash him over the head. Now, between getting bashed on the head and him already having a steel plate in his head, he suffers a form of amnesia um, and forgets what's happened over the past little bit. And some very interesting things have happened. I'm not going to do spoils about what exactly has happened, but Matt gets... Um, confused and just doesn't remember anything about the robbery or the things that happened after the robbery, where the money went, um, where his wife went, anything like that. So the guys eventually convince themselves that he doesn't know anything and that he does have a brain injury. And then things play out in a, in a quite an interesting way. Now, amnesia is one of those things that really doesn't play well um, these days it's such a complicated thing amnesia it's never like it is in the movies but this one kind of gives us a little bit more of an explanation of why matt has amnesia not only is it the bash on the head with the butt of a gun from perry lopez uh is the actor perry lopez people might remember played lou escobar in chinatown in the sequel the two jakes so um He's, he's in there in a very early role, along with another character actor called Arthur Batanides, who, um, both of whom play kind of Hispanic characters in various bits of media um, from the 1960s into the 1980s. So not only do we have the film noir aspects of the kind of flawed man with the alcoholic floozy of a wife, and floozy being a term of the time, of course, um, and a robbery, 
and a disreputable friend. But we have a couple of twists and turns of fate happening to um, Matt Jamison in this movie. And that makes it kind of interesting. The third act, even though it does end on a kind of, not an action note, but a kind of inevitable fate has fucked me again kind of note. Even though the movie ends like that, it is quite interesting. It's very much a B picture, but the acting is pretty good. Jeffrey Hunter, um, of course, we know him as Captain Pike in the original Star Trek pilot. And um, as Jesus in um, The Greatest Story Ever Told, was it? Or King of Kings? Just let me have a look at that. It was actually King of Kings, which a lot of people in Hollywood called I Was a Teenage Jesus. Uh, the other one, of course, being The Greatest Story Ever Told, where Max von Sydow played Jesus. But um, the weird thing about um, Jeffrey Hunter's life was he actually died in 1969. He had a stroke, um, took a fall, and um, died of complications from the emergency surgery and the fall, which... Um, is a bit unfortunate. He's one of those guys who would have went on to do character actor pieces in TV over the years had he not um, had the accident that he had. But he did do some good things. He, did, he worked in Sergeant Rutledge with um, John Ford, of course. Um, a couple of action films like um, Hell to Eternity and uh, The Longest Day. He was in that as well. Did He was one of those actors who kind of bounced between doing movies and doing TV series. He was at that kind of level of fame and level of... Um, skill and talent where he could do either and end up doing both then we have david jamison the people mostly know from the fugitive and harry o um a good character actor he did uh, he was a contract player in, for the studios in the um 1950s along with people like Stuart whitman and a bunch of other people but he did some um really kind of cool and interesting films one of my favorite movies that he did was a movie in the, about 1961 around the time this movie was made, called Ring of Fire, which is um, actually set up in the Pacific Northwest in America. Um, it says, In the 1960s Oregon, two sheriff's deputies arrest three teenagers for robbery, but are overpowered and taken hostage while forest fires rage all around them. And they've got some really cool forest fire footage in that movie. Apart, yeah, it's one of those um, early action films from the 60s that uses the landscape as one of the characters. But David Jansen, uh, he had back problems, amongst other things, and um, a few booze problems, but I, I did like him as um, Richard Kimball in The Fugitive, and also as Harry O playing a kind of down-and-out private eye in that 1970s TV series. He's got a kind of world-weary, cocky charm about him as an actor, which is very good. And then we've got Stella Stevens, who um, was known, mostly known from doing comedy, things like The Nutty Professor and Little Abner in the late 1950s. She was in that as well. But she did a couple of good character roles in the early 60s. Uh, this one and she was also in John Cassavetti's Too Late Blues with Bobby Darren and she's very good in that as well so she's one of those actors that um, like Elaine Devney I suppose uh, Devery sorry not Devney Devery um, she's one of those people who was seen as a starlet rather than as an actor but in both Man Trap and in Too Late Blues she does show she had chops as an actor and um, really uh, unfortunately didn't get the breaks that she needed in order to um, become kind of a, a top-range actor. She did. A, she had a long career. She worked well into the 80s and 90s as well. 
and um, was in the first R-rated movie I saw. In fact, Slaughter with um, Jim Brown. She was in that as well. So she did black exploitation movies. She did comedies with um, people like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis separately, not together. And, uh, yeah, I kind of liked Stella Stevenson. In this one, she is really good. She gets to play broad. Everybody's playing large in this movie. The, the There's no kind of nuance to the acting. At one end, you've got Bob Crane playing the lecherous neighbour. You've got um, Vince Biscay, the character played by David Jensen, who's quite outrageous. Then you've got Nina played by Stella Stevenson. Everyone's playing broad in this movie. It's a loud, over-the-top kind of film noir very late in the piece, of course. And I think it, it kind of does justice to John D. McDonald's original novel, which was, in its essence, a pulp novel um, of kind of robbery, revenge, um, a little bit of sex thrown in there, though McDonald was never explicit in the sex that he wrote about. But it's a good, honest plot. I mean, it, it moves along nicely. Emin O'Brien's direction is um, good without being brilliant. And um, if you get a chance, it's definitely a movie to see. Like I said, you can get pick it up on DVD or Blu-ray from eBay, if you like. And um, it's, it's worth doing if you're one of the fans of those kind of 1960s, early 1960s studio action films. And it's got a couple of nice um, plot twists toward the end that make it even more interesting. But anyway, I'm going to take a break now. I want to get back and go to talk about a much quieter and more paced and more nuanced film. Victor Nunez's 1984 movie made for, kind of for television, for PBS at least. A Flash of Green starring Ed Harris and Blair Brown. Uh, you and me both know, Jimmy. World needs folks like me. Folks with a raw need for power. Without us, wouldn't anything ever get done. Most folks don't even think about it. Most of them end up willing to settle for nothing. You act like that sometimes, Jimmy. So wrapped up with trying to figure out what we... That you forget trying to make something out of now. Maybe my wants are small. Maybe it just pleasures you to think they're small. Ain't a kid anymore, Jimmy. You've been telling yourself too long that you don't give a damn about anything. Well, I know different. You're the small town cynic who likes to watch the animals from close range. So, this time, come aboard for the ride. Be someplace where you can really see him. If you need an excuse, Tell yourself you're researching a book. Come on, boy. Let's you and me stir things up. Get yourself going again. That's Richard Jordan as Elmo Bliss talking to the character of Jimmy Wing, played by Ed Harris, in the John D. McDonald adaptation of Flash of Green. Uh, it's an interesting um, book, apart from anything else, and, and a very interesting movie. It's what they call a Florida book a Florida novel in that um, the Florida and the history of Florida and what it means to be in Florida are a definite part of the book. Uh, Carl Hyacin does it in crime novels. McDonald did it in a great deal of his work. Uh, other people have done it as well. Uh, Randy Wayne White, um, amongst others. 
And of the novels that McDonald did based in Florida, this is probably the one that uh, is the most literary. And it's also uh, a really nice character study of a, a flawed man finding in a very fucked up but apt way. The story in its essence is very simple if you, from the plot point of view. And uh, I'll just read the one from IMDb, because, uh, sorry, from Wikipedia, because that pretty much says it in the paragraph. Um, the, a flash of green tells the story of a small town corruption and two people brave enough to fight back. When a local reporter starts sympathising with an eco-group opposed to a new development, a local county commissioner attempts to quiet him with a bribe. Going along with it at first, the reporter soon develops a conscience when the commissioner uses a right-wing paramilitary group to keep the um, ecology-based people in line. So that's pretty much the basis of it. But um, Ed Harris plays uh, Jimmy Wing, who's a local newspaper man. He's a kind of journeyman journalist who um, doesn't flinch away from doing stories about car accidents and things like that. The movie set, as the book was, in early 1960s Florida. It was filmed around Fort Myers in, on the west coast of Florida, around the Sanibel Island and Captiva and those kind of areas, where, in fact, Randy Wayne White has set his series of Doc Ford novels. So um, Ed Harris is Jimmy Wing. His wife's really ill in hospital. She's got some kind of degenerative disease, and she has to stay in... Um, almost palliative care. Uh, he's basically in love with uh, one of his best friends, uh, a woman called Cat Hubble, played by Air Brown, who's a recent widow. So Jimmy's married, but his wife is not coming out of hospital. Um, and Cat is a recent widow. She's aware of his um, attraction to her, and she kind of reciprocates it to a certain extent. But she knows that Jimmy's essentially um, not a very nice person in some ways. But he, you know, he's a kind of amiable guy, but he's one of those amiable guys that doesn't stick his neck out. And when um, Elmo Bliss, played by Richard Jordan, decides that what he's going to do on the local, uh, a local bay called Grassy Bay is create a big island and put a whole bunch of houses on it, Cat uh, and a previous group who have stopped development in the bay previously get back together and try to have the local county commissioners stop that from occurring. Problem is that um, Elmo has ambitions. Elmo wants to be the governor of Florida. He wants to get involved with the people doing this development who are local Floridians and push it through. So what he does is he basically bribes Jimmy, partly with paying for the palliative care for his wife to find the dirt on the people involved in the environmental group and reluct and if if he does that then Elmo will keep the people fighting against the environmentalists away from cat so Jimmy does that and um, yeah finds the um, the dirt on these people in various ways um they're kind of you know just those little human flaws that they have which in an early 1960s semi-rural southern state um really can ruin people's lives uh, one of them is a, a discredited scientist who's looking at the environmental impacts of the bay development uh, another one is a teacher who's involved with it um and there are a couple of other people 
who Jimmy, through being the amiable local boy he is, finds the dirt on and passes it on to Elmo. So the group um, in favour of the development take action against them in various ways. And that's um, where Jimmy comes to that crisis of conscience. Conscience, sorry, not conscious. Conscience. Um, and and uh, yeah, and um, he decides that he's going to take action to stop the developers and to stop Elmo, even though the cards are stacked against him. His newspaper that he works for in southern Florida there doesn't want to be involved with the environmental group, and um, everybody's yeah. There's a, a, an old story. It's that story of life versus economics and development and um, whether the quality of life you lose by building something large is worth the monetary returns on it um, yeah, and also the impact on the environment as well because they're going to basically ruin the bay when if the development goes through. So these are questions that nobody was talking about in 1962 really. But McDonald did. He lived down around that part of Florida and knew the local area and the local people and the kind of glad-handing good old boy businessman that that kind of area inevitably produces. We have the same thing here in Australia and Queensland and some parts of Western Australia and to a certain extent the Northern Territory as well where um, people... Yeah, that, it's that kind of neoliberalism thing trickle-down economics, there's strong believers in that. They think the development's going to cure all ills. And they're, they've either got a, not an unawareness or don't really think hard on the fact that these changes that they're proposing will have profound effects on a number of people's lives. It's a, a very relevant story to today. And Victor Nunez, the director, does a very good job of this. The movie's not fast-paced. It's, it's kind of slow and leisurely. It moves the way people move on a hot, humid summer's day, which there are a number of in this movie. And Ed Harris is very, very good. This is one of the early strong Ed Harris roles. Um, he, The moral complexity of Jimmy Wing is conveyed very well. I mean, that kind of blue-eyed, right stuff look that Ed Harris had. Um, and still has to a certain extent, even though he's now playing more um, dark characters, let's say. Really works well for him. He's, he's a nice guy in, in some ways. He's nice to kids. He's friendly. He knows the local people. He's not an alcoholic. He's not nasty. He's having an affair with somebody he went to school with while his wife's um, in the hospital and yeah he kind of has a very casual relationship with her but she knows him much better there are a lot of good conversations in this movie between people there are um that this is one of those movies where the dialogue is so crucially important and the acting as well ed harris is really good blair brown is very good even though we see her her character cat mostly through jimmy's eyes there are a couple of moments where her character shines and we actually learn who this person that jimmy is infatuated with actually is and that works really well victor nunez the director is a director who's hasn't done a lot of work but this, uh, there's a few things he's done that are very good. He did a movie um, in the late 90s called Yuli's Gold with Peter Fonda in it. It's the best thing Peter Fonda ever did as an actor. He was never a fantastically good actor. I'm including Easy Rider there as well. Um, 
Yuli's Gold is a really great film. I've actually got um, a day, not a day bill, but a, a small A4 size poster from Yuli's Gold signed by Peter Fonda. I got it signed by him when he was here in Australia. And uh, it's a, it's like a flash of green. It's a movie that has its own pace and its own rhythm. And it's not a movie that modern audiences are necessarily going to gravitate towards because of that pacing. Um, it's all about the plotting and, and the scenes and the characters. Uh, the acting is universally good, mostly because it's realistic. There's almost a documentary look and feel to this movie. There are lots of little pieces of business where Jimmy's driving through town in his big um, yank tank car with the fins on the back, watching kids line up to go into a 35-cent cinema set, setting at lunchtime and you know, seeing the, the small businesses that used to line the main streets of towns before the big um, franchise stores took over the outskirts of towns. It's, it's got a great feel of time and place in it. The hairstyles are right, the clothing people wear is right, the way they talk, the fact that people smoke in offices and use typewriters if they're journalists, um, the fact that there's a bottleneck of information because the local media is run by business people, um, which no longer exists, of course, because um, with internet and social media, the dynamic between business and those who protest against the actions of business have changed very much in the years since. But that's uh, very much of its time then, even in 1984 when the movie was made. We didn't have any of those um, access options that we now have for this kind of thing. But this is a really nice film. Uh, the sense of place is great. We just have a lot of shots on beaches and, and docks with the kind of calm waters of the Gulf Coast of Florida there. And, um, yeah, and, and there are a couple of very ugly bits of business as the developers, through their proxies, start attacking the... Um, ecologists and the eco-protesters in some very sometimes indirect but also physically brutal ways there are some really um nasty bits of work it's it's a really good film because of that it um the themes haven't gone away that are in this movie and i said book before but it's actually a movie and well the book and the movie the themes are still there and there are these are fights that hundreds and thousands of people are having all around the world on development versus preservation of environment. We've got it here on the Gold Coast and um, the Great Barrier Reef up in North Queensland. We've got it here in Victoria, though. They tend to lock things down a lot better down here than they do in Queensland, where the cowboys tend to run the show. But, um, yeah, th these things are uh, contemporary post-World War Two themes in developed and developing societies you know that that fight between saving what you have and building what you can imagine and this movie is is all about that but it's also about how a man finds his best self after he not following his best self causes a lot of damage to a lot of people now, the book's a little stronger on that point of view, uh, than that point toward the end of the film, and the action that Jimmy Wing actually takes to combat Elmo Bliss and to stop his ambition and to stop his um, selfish, narcissistic rise to the top. He doesn't do it in a way that you'd expect him to do it, 
he does try it that way and it doesn't work but then when he becomes in a social sense he's most powerless is when he finds his inner strength now as I said I'm not going to spoil this movie by giving what happens in that part of things to you but it's a, a really um it's a forgotten film. It's a hard one to find. You may be able to find a torrent of it if you look around. And I recommend that you strongly look around for this one because it's there are some good quality ones around there. There are no, as far as I can tell, there are no DVD or Blu-ray releases of this and it's not on any of the streaming services, which is a shame because um, yeah, seeing this part of Ed Harris's career is interesting apart from anything else. Blair Brown being very good in this one. And also, if you're a fan of John D. McDonald, you're going to want to see the movie anyway because I want to see everything that was adapted from his work. I've read maybe 90, maybe 95% of his novels and I've liked them. But, um, yeah, this movie, I, I like the fact that it's a movie from the 80s based on a book from the 60s that resonates really well in the second decade of the 21st century. There's something of value there when that occurs and where those themes don't go away. Um, there are also some other minor actors in the thing. John Glover, um, an actor that people remember from movies like Gremlins 2. I think it's Gremlins 2. And a bunch of other things is in there um, as the husband of one of the protesters. And... Um, yeah, and Richard Jordan is Elmo Bliss. He's very good. Richard Jordan died at the age of 56 um, uh, after a brain tumour. But um, he was mostly, most of his work and most of the work that, for which he's well regarded was done on the stage. And he also directed things. He directed Raul Julia and Macbeth um, in New York in the 1970s, for instance. Um, he was also the bad guy in Logan's Run, the movie Logan's Run. Uh, but um, yeah, he's um, his Elmo. It isn't kind of an over-the-top Burl Ives kind of good old boy character. It's um, understated and more calculating than that. But uh, he's very good. I mean, the acting in this is good. George Coe turns up. Uh, George Coe, who died only this year as well, turns up as one of the journalists who works with Jimmy Wing, uh, who's got an alcohol problem himself. So we've got him in there um but I, this is a movie that sometimes when i'm watching films i realize i've been watching shit for a while i'll just watch kind of you know films without too much brain to them that have got lots of pretty special effects and lots of fanboy squee to them and things like that and then i'll re-watch a movie like this and want to see more films like this and um, kind of remind myself that there are two sides to me as a cinephile, one of which is the popcorn Marvel cinematic universe me, and there's also the guy that likes this kind of film and, and likes quieter, paced, well-acted, interesting cinema. And I kind of that side of me doesn't get fed often enough. But I'm really going to have to do that. Maybe that's my... I mean, I don't usually do resolutions. But what I should do as a resolution for 2017, and yes, that sounds fucking futuristic to me, is to try to up the number of quality, non-mainstream films that I enjoy 
during the year. I want to watch more French crime movies from the 50s. That's one of the things I want to kind of dip into more. I'm going to have to tap into people like um, Craig Watson, my good friend Craig, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, and see what's cool in Asian cinema because he's got his finger on that pulse. And um, also kind of reach out there and just see what else is around. I want to do a bit more creamy films. I want to do some more um, French New Wave and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's yeah, it's not a bad ambition to have. Read better books a little bit more and also watch some quality films rather than popular films as a bit of a change for things. I think that's going to be where I'm going to go with this. Now, that's about it for this time around. Definitely see these films if you can. They're going to be a bit of fun for you. But um, the next time I'm supposed to record is on Newton Mass on the 25th of December. Is supposed to be the day upon which I record the next Paleo Cinema podcast. I'm going to try to squeeze one in this week while I've got a week off, so I may pre-record it. So I'm not going to do the season's greetings thing on this particular one, but I'll do it on the next one. But anyway... Um, as usual, the two Kerrys are very important to the podcast because they are supporters via Patreon of Paleo Cinema and the Martian Driving Podcast. So thank you both, gents. And also all of the other Patreon subscribers are equally important and they will be in the credits at the end here. Haven't had time yet to re-record them all. And I want to thank you for listening as well. Um, there are a number of people who uh, offer feedback in various ways. The big one who does it via facebook in an interesting way is supporter of the podcast chris mounts who on his facebook page talks about the podcasts he listens to during the week and paleo cinema and martian driving do show up in the ones that he likes so thank you for that high regard chris and anyway in the meantime look after yourselves uh if you're up north stay warm and stay out of the nasty weather please if you can at all avoid it um, I, I don't like losing listeners, particularly in that way. If you're down here, keep your liquids up. Um, put on the sunblock, which I didn't do on Saturday. And uh, yeah, everybody, just let this year pass. Let it um, put a line through it and just let it pass and um, be optimistic for the future. So anyway, that's about it this time around. I'll catch you next week with another Martian Driving Podcast. And in the meantime, look after yourselves. And I think I'll put some music after the credits as well, just to let you shuffle out of the cinema. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers, and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our Technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. 
Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Domino, domino, domino.